Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us today for the Ask the Expert webinar, The Future of Teen Orthodontics, Invisalign Treatment with Mandibular Advancement. You will earn two CE hours for attending today's program, and you'll receive important instructions on how to obtain your CE certificate at the conclusion of the presentation. Additionally, CE hours will automatically be added to your Invisalign doctor site account. Please note you are able to listen to today's program via the webcast, and throughout the webinar you will have the opportunity to ask text questions, which our presenter will answer at the conclusion of the presentation. Today's program will be archived in its entirety one week from today on the Academy tab of your Invisalign doctor site, where you may also access archived versions of all of our previous Ask the Expert programs anytime for CE hours. I'm pleased to introduce our speakers for today, Dr. Barry Glazer and Dr. Milos Lekic. Dr. Barry Glazer is an Invisalign Platinum provider and was awarded his dental degree from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine in 1988 and earned his specialty in orthodontics from Boston University School of Graduate Dentistry in 1992. Dr. Glazer was an early adopter of Invisalign Teen and the Atero Digital Scanner. It will be followed by Dr. Milos Lekic, who graduated from University of Manitoba Faculty of Dentistry in 2004. He continued his studies and obtained his MSc and a graduate orthodontic degree from University of Manitoba in 2007, when he also co-founded a combined pediatric dentistry orthodontic practice, Children's Dental World in Winnipeg. Dr. Lekic digitized his practice and started doing more in Invisalign treatment in early 2017, and he is now a Diamond Plus provider. I will now turn the floor over to Dr. Glazer. Oh, good Dr. afternoon. Glazer, you have the floor. Hi, everybody out there in computer land. It's always a pleasure to do these, these conferences. Uh, I'm going to dive right in so that uh, myself and Dr. Lekic have enough time. To, to cover our material for today. So first, a little bit about me. I always have to start by talking about me. I have a degree in psychology, Penn Dental, BU Ortho. I uh, got the teaching bug very early on. I was the Associate Director of Orthodontics at Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx for a few years before purchasing my own practice in 1995. I'm a member of the Aligned Faculty, and which means I have a nice gig traveling around the world teaching uh, nice doctors like you all about uh, Invisalign treatment. Um, I was also honored to be asked to be the principal investigator for the North American study for Invisalign treatment with mandibular advancement. And I have a unique perspective that I'd like to share with you at, for, at the beginning of this uh, presentation. So five years ago, if you, if you had told me that you could correct a class two malocclusion with two pieces of plastic, I would have said that would have been far-fetched. But five years ago is when I was approached by Align Technology and they asked me to be the principal investigator for the North American study for Invisalign treatment with mandibular advancement and I, and I was very excited. And I was excited because we were gonna do a study. We were gonna do science. Uh, and as many of you know, there are many devices on the market 
that are being sold to uh, orthodontists and being used on patients with lots of wild claims and, and little to no clinical testing. And I was very happy to see that, that Align was willing to do a, a real study, to do real science on this device so that ultimately we have a, a product that we can feel comfortable using on our young patients. So how does it work? Well, basically, the mechanism of action of Invisalign treatment with mandibular advancement is similar to the effects of other functional appliances. Precision wings that are incorporated both into the upper and lower aligners engage. It's similar to the mechanism of action of a twin block. Posturing the mandible forward uh, and, and having a similar effect mechanism of action to functional appliances. So basically bringing the mandible forward into a, an edge-to-edge -edge position and then expecting dentoalveolar uh, compensation over a period of time. So what's the target patient for this appliance? Now, as we know, uh, functional appliances aren't mandible growers per se. The mechanism of action is, is primarily dentoalveolar with a small component of skeletal change. But nevertheless, the target patient for this appliance is going to be a growing teen that present, presents with a class two malocclusion with some degree of facial convexity and mandibular atrognathism. So if you look at these silhouettes, and you're thinking about patients that, that you would treat, let's say, for example, with a functional appliance, whether it's fixed or removable, or perhaps you would, uh, with, with clear aligners with Invisalign, where you're prescribing a class two correction simulation, where you want to bring the mandible forward, that would be the target patient for, for this appliance. So I want to talk to you at least for a few minutes about the North American study to give you a peek behind the curtain uh, uh, into the science that we've learned from, from this study. So we'll talk about the purpose. I'll introduce you to the study design. We'll spend some time looking at the results, and then at the end we'll draw some conclusions. So the purpose of the study was to evaluate the effectiveness of a novel hybrid clear aligner functional appliance on the correction of class II malocclusion in growing patients. Essentially, we wanted to see how this appliance would work. So what was the study methodology? It was a multi-center IRB study, uh, prospective study, meaning that we had 10 different centers, 10 clinical sites throughout North America. For this sample, this sample of patients that I'm going to share with you are the sample of patients that, of, of data that was shared uh, with the FDA. The number of patients analyzed in this sample is 40. The average age of the patient was 13.6 years, 53% male, 47% female. The average number of mandibular advancement aligners per arch was 36.3. The average mandibular advancement phase was 13.4 months. Study design was a multi-center prospective study in 10 centers throughout North America. And the methodology before, uh, after, and after records were obtained on all patients. In addition to a quality of life survey, and we'll spend a minute talking about the results of the quality of life survey because I find them to be fascinating. And you should also know that the cephalometric analyses were done by a third party so that there could not be the possibility of, of tracing bias. 
And this little map shows you the centers where, where the uh, appliance was tested. And you should also know that in addition to this study in North America, that as of November, more than 15,000 cases have been started globally. There was a limited market release in Asia, and uh, as some of you are aware, the, the approval for this appliance came sooner in other parts of the world than it did to the U.S. So at this point, there's also data on, on a large sample of patients, and I think that's important because there's been many refinements and improvements uh, that, that you'll see when you submit your cases in the U.S. So let's take a look, a little bit closer look at the data from the sample of 40 patients. Now, first of all, in a general way, um, when we look at patients from T0, which is the beginning of treatment, to T1, which is the end of the mandibular advancement phase. So that's the data we're looking at. It's not necessarily end of treatment. It's from beginning of treatment to end of, of mandibular advancement phase. There were positive improvements in overjet, molar relationship, A and B, Witsuprasal, convexity, IMPA, mandibular length, SNA, and SNB. So let's, let's analyze the data a little bit more closely and let's crunch some of the numbers. So what you're looking at on this table on the top are dental measurements and then on the bottom are cephalometric measurements. And uh, I'm going to advance past this slide and I'm going to focus in on what I think are the more important data points from this slide. So let's first take a look at dental measurements. So as you can see, the mean overjet for the sample of 40 patients at the beginning of treatment was 5.1 millimeters. At the end of the mandibular advancement phase, that was reduced by 1.83 millimeters to an end of an MA phase measurement of 3.27, and that was statistically significant. There were also statistically, I can never say that, there are also statistically significant improvements in molar relationship. As measured linearly, as you can see in this graph, that there was a move from a class two molar relationship to a class one molar relationship on average of approximately three millimeters. And remember, this is during the mandibular advancement phase, which on average lasted 13 months. So dental improvement over that time. Let's look at some cephalometric numbers. So the mean A and B of the sample at the beginning of treatment was 5.99 degrees. At the end of treatment was 4.64 degrees for an improvement in A and B, or I should say a reduction in the A and B angle of 1.35 degrees, which is also statistically significant. When we look at WITS appraisal, the mean uh, WITS appraisal for the sample at the beginning of treatment was 4.77 millimeters that was reduced down to 2.68 millimeters for an improvement of 2.09 millimeters, which was also statistically significant. Facial convexity. Now remember, the, the target patient for this case, for this treatment, is going to be a class two patient that has a convex profile and, and metrographic mandible. So initial facial convexity for the sample was 10.71 degrees at the end of the mandibular advancement phase had been improved to 7.58 degrees, which is an improvement of 3.13 degrees, also statistically significant. Now, I find this fascinating, but not surprising. Mandibular plane angle is measured from mandibular plane to SN. Now, as you see, there was not a statistically significant change. Essentially, mandibular plane angle was, was static from beginning of treatment to the end of the MA phase. 
And I think that's very important. You know, one of the issues with, uh, let's say, fixed functional appliances is the tendency to open the mandibular plane angle and rotate the mandible down and back, which are things that we don't want to do in a class two retrognathic patient. And I think it's pre been pretty well established for Invisalign patients in general that there is good maintenance of the mandibular plane angle and the vertical dimension because of the interocclusal inter, uh, plastic. So as you can see here, we had nice stability in the mandibular plane angle. So the fact that this is not statistically significant is actually a, a good finding. Same thing with IMPA. Now one of the knocks against functional appliances is the tendency to procline the lower incisor. But if you look at our sample, and you can see the uh, pretreatment IMPA uh, incisor mandibular plane angle for the group was 100 degrees. At the end of treatment, there was no change. It was only a quarter millimeter of change, which is more than what you would, ex was what you would expect just through chance. So that is a non-statistically significant change. And I think the fact that we can have good stability of the lower incisor position is also a very exciting finding. So let's quickly take a look at a few before and after patients of mine from the study. This is a 12-year-old female patient. If you look at her facial profile, this is the type of patient, especially if you want to get started on Invisalign treatment with mandibular advancement, this is the kind of target patient that you're looking for. Good nasolabial angle, retrognathic mandible, but not, not severely skeletally retrognathic. And as you can see in her photos, she had a significant class two division one malocclusion with a deep overbite. So here's the patient at the beginning of treatment. Here she is about 20 months later at the end of treatment. Uh, nice correction to class one on both sides, improvement of the overbite and overjet to normal, and a very nice improvement in the soft tissue profile. This young man was 11 years old when he presented for treatment. Again, great target profile for mandibular advancement. Convex facial profile, normal nasolabial angle, and a, and a somewhat recessive chin. Class two division one malocclusion with a deep overbite. Pre-treatment, here he's at the end of treatment. Again, nice solid correction to class one bilaterally, midlines are on, improvement in overbite and overjet, and a nice improvement in his soft tissue profile as well. This 12-year-old female presented with a class two division one malocclusion complicated with congenitally missing lower second premolars. I elected to keep her primary molars in position. So my treatment plan was to finish her, because of the, the larger ease, to finish her with class one canine, class two molar. And again, if you look at her pretreatment profile and occlusion and compare it to the end of treatment 19 months later, you'll see a really nice improvement in the soft tissue profile. She's a great patient and a nice correction to class one and, and a correction of the overbite and overjet. So these three patients were some of the earliest patients to, to get this appliance. And as you can see, I, I think the results were, were very gratifying. Let's talk a little bit about quality of life. During the treatment, throughout treatment, we would periodically survey the patients to ask them how they were doing. So these are the questions that we asked them. Please rate your orthodontic experience to date, and as you can see, overall, they rated it very easy. Please indicate how severe your discomfort has been within the last week, and you can see essentially no pain. Were you worried or concerned about the appearance of your appliance? And as you can see, it was essentially never. And for the most part, patients were very pleased and happy with the looks of their teeth and their appliance. And 
if you think about, and I've used them all, you know, functional appliances, whether they're removable or fixed, uh, certainly uh, if you've used Herbst appliances, and, and we, they, they work, but there's lots of issues with breakage and pain and discomfort, uh, and certainly aesthetic issues with frankles and activators and that sort of thing. So I think it's nice to see that patients found the experience overall to be very easy and very comfortable. So conclusions. So based on the results of the study, uh, my conclusions are that Invisalign treatment with mandibular advancement is safe and effective for growing patients with class two division one malocclusions. And as you know, it, it's, it was a bit of a struggle, but I'm excited to report that uh, we are now, uh, the appliance is now approved by the FDA for use in the United States. So I hope that gives you a little bit of an overview of, of the science behind the appliance, and hopefully it will give you some confidence to know that you out there that are listening are not the beta testers. This has been tested uh, rigorously. It has, the appliance has been improved multiple times throughout the study and even after the study, so that what you have is something that's robust and something that will give you confidence that you know will work for your patients, give them a good experience, and give you a good experience, too. So I hope that that little quick introduction has given you some data that you'll find useful. With that, I would like to turn the floor over to Dr. Milos Lekic that will take, take it from here and show us some cases, uh, clinically treated cases. Dr. Lekic, you have the floor. Thank you very much, Dr. Glazer. Um, I uh, want to say hi to everyone in computer land as well. Um, what I would like to do is um, go through a run-through of a few cases that I've treated and uh, give you a bit of a background about uh, my clinical experience with the, with the appliance itself. But before that, about my practice and, and kind of how I converted my practice more into um, uh, a line use. So this is my gang at home. These are my three little kids. Uh, and this is them jumping on me uh, when I'm trying to prepare the lecture. And a little bit about my uh, my practice. So um, we opened a clinic uh, here in Winnipeg called Children's Dental World uh, 12 years ago. And uh, it's now grown to three clinics here. And we have one in uh, Saskatchewan, which is a neighboring province. Uh, and mine is a, is a big group of pedo-ortho group. So that's the model I, I practice in. I'm showing you nice, beautiful pictures in sunny weather, but it's it's today uh, with wind chill. It's minus 40 in Winnipeg, so it's it's really really cold. And so my practice history uh, went something like this: um, 2007, we opened the first location. Uh, my appliances choice uh, for early uh, or phase one class two correction was Bionator. I used smart clip brackets, and I had to deal with broken brackets, pokey wires and actually kids in tears because with SmartClip uh, there was quite a bit of pressing and pushing. You had to, you had to uh, supply quite a bit of force to uh, clear the bracket uh, to engage the wire. Uh, 2009 to 13, we opened a second location. I switched to TwinBlock uh, and the design of uh, MA is similar to TwinBlock, Invisalign with mandibular advancement. I started using speed brackets, but again, had a lot of broken brackets, broken doors, pokey wires, issues like that. Uh, four years later, we had a third location. I'm still using the same brackets, and I'm still having the same issues. And uh, I don't mean this as a knock-on-speed bracket. It's a good product. It's just something that I was dealing with um, all the time. So when we opened the fourth location in 2017 is when I started thinking about uh, uh, digital conversion of my practice and started using more Invisalign clear aligners. And what I did is I ran a random sample of 100 patients I saw. 
to see, well, how many appointments do I treat them in and, you know, what, what's the deal with efficiencies? And about 67 out of the 100 patients I pulled uh, had to come in for extra appointments at some point in time. And so my schedule was getting really clogged up to the point that it would take five months from the day someone came and saw me for a consult until they had the records done, case presentation done, until I can put their braces on. So I, I, I hit such a log jam that I couldn't, I couldn't effectively practice and grow my practice anymore. I was the bottleneck. And so the digital conversion and starting uh, more use of Invisalign clear aligners, and now we're at about 80% of all case starts, uh, has allowed me to uh, basically grow the practice significantly. So we've, we've seen a 60% growth in, in that one calendar year uh, last year when we did the digital conversion. Interestingly, what really got me thinking about uh, using more Invisalign was actually M8, the minimal advancement feature. And the way that FDA and Health Canada function, they kind of have minds of their own. Usually, uh, U.S. gets uh, the cool products earlier, but uh, for some reason, FDA was held up uh, approving it, and Health Canada approved it, and we had it as of 2017. I have a lot of patients in phase one treatment, uh, this being a combined pedo-ortho practice, so... Um, I was looking for an easier solution, something better than a twin block, uh, not just in terms of compliance, but also comfort and, and uh, giving patients a better patient experience, trying to make my life easier. And so the reason why I started using it really has been the MA, medibular advancement. And since that, those were the first few cases I started. I then started realizing the efficiencies of uh, uh, Invisalign treatment and uh, started treating, treating more patients with uh, with Invisalign in general. So this is not minus 40. <laughs> this is this is a place we, we don't like to be, but when I see this picture, I think about, um, you know, nice, relaxing time. Obviously, our lives are busy, hectic. We can't just be relaxing and sitting on this beach unless we win the uh, the lottery, but uh, certainly let's look into ways about make uh, how we can make our practice lives uh, more efficient and more pleasant um, so we don't have a hard time going to work. So... Focusing on the MA, what are the alternatives? So here you can see that the alternatives are any one of these things, um, you know, pick your poison. I was using a Forces appliance. Um, that was my, you know, fixed with braces appliance. And if I was doing a straight phase one, I would have done the twin block. But um, even the uh, um, uh, carrier there I showed on, at the end, uh, I see that as an alternative as well. Um, I know that there's a lot of combined treatment with Invisalign and carrier appliances, but as, as far as I'm concerned, clinically, uh, the only reason why I should be giving someone carrier with Invisalign is because that patient was misdiagnosed at some point in time or they didn't have access to orthodontic care, uh, both of which are, are bad scenarios. So, so I really think that every child who's developing class 2 malocclusion um, should be treated with this appliance. So, some general notes, it's the uh, first clear aligner solution for class 2 correction in growing patients, as Dr. Uh, Glazer has said. Uh, it combines uh, the benefits of movement of the lower jaw with uh, simultaneously aligning the teeth, which we don't really have with um, any other product. Uh, before, when I was doing a lot of um, bracket forces treatment, I typically have to spend the first year nine months to a year leveling, aligning to get to the point where I'm in stiff enough wires that I can um, deliver the forces appliance. 
And so the precision wings are being built into the aligners. The wings are modified as the jaw is being advanced, and this allows for decompensations and other clinical goals prior to advancement. So we have the option of doing pre-MA treatment with this appliance. So I'll talk a little bit about what I consider pre-pre-MA phase. So this is something where, as a doc, um, in terms of clinic um, case submission, this is where uh, you have to make a decision whether you're submitting your case through teen or through the Invisalign first option, depending on how early you're starting the patient. I'm going to share with you some of the mistakes I've made, and I made a lot of the mistakes, so hopefully you don't make the same mistakes with the uh, uh, delivery and follow-up of MA patients, because I find I learn from mistakes much better from just showing you good, good results. Um, but the mistake here is that if I start a case too soon with a teen uh, submission, um, if I don't time it right, then you know I don't I won't have enough enough time after my MA phase to treat out the case because because every case that I treat with MA should receive what I would consider comprehensive orthodontics with normal or regular aligners without the wings afterwards. So if the patient is very young and you have things to do, this is what I would call pre-pre-MA phase. So this is where you have to count your five versus 10 years and whether you're submitting teen or whether you're submitting uh, through uh, in this line first. How we deal with it in our clinic um, with the discounts and everything we have, there is a price difference of about $750 that you're going to have on your lab bill whether you submit a case through teen and stay with it or whether you go Invisalign first and then that case becomes a teen case. And what I do is I just split that difference over my phases. So my phase one fee will be uh, $375 more and my phase two fee, uh, the, the remainder of the fee will be a, a, the other $375 more. So that patient will basically just pay the, the lab bill difference of $750. So the pre-PMA uh, phase goals are to obviously diagnose and categorize the patients properly. So this is the stuff we do every day in our clinics. You know, we're looking at whether the patient's brachy, meso, or dolicocephalic. Uh, we have our own versions of clinical findings, things we prefer. Obviously, we're looking at cephalometric values, such as the y-axis, facial angle, IMPA. Uh, we want to look at absolute and relative facial heights. And, and most importantly, where we are in time, because what we're seeing when we see a patient is just a static record. I mean, it's just a snippet shot in time we need to properly diagnose them and place them in, in, in their growth pattern and in, in a larger scale of things where they're headed. So the setup for me is um, I'm looking to have more than three-quarter cusp uh, canine or molar relationships if the leeway space differential is not enough. And what, what I mean here is that as Dr. Glazer showed that uh, last case, he left, he treated canines to class one, but he left the uh, uh, molars in slide class two because he had that leeway space differential. You get more space in mandible than in maxilla. Uh, but if you've analyzed the case and the leeway space differential is simply not enough to get those molars to class one, uh, then I would treat with MA. So my cutoff there is three-quarter cusp or more, severe overjet, um, and that typically is combined with the next point, which is the severe overbite. Uh, and my severe overjet uh, personal category is seven millimeters or more. Uh, those are the cases that, that uh, you need to consider um, uh, that will be eventually rolling into MA treatment. The rationale there is fairly simple. Uh, if I have more than three-quarter cusp class two relationship, I have to somehow jump the bite uh, to correct it. And by jumping it, I mean I have a lot of occlusal interferences to deal with if I'm simply doing it with elastics. So 
the option of uh, MA is very good because it gives you that byte opening so that you can get the AP correction. And then once you finish your set of MA aligners, uh, then you can reevaluate the case again when you rescan whether you're going to be ordering more MA aligners or more regular aligners. My cutoff there is if I'm on the downward slope towards my class one, so if I'm talking less than half a class uh, class two, so you know a third of, a third of a cusp class two or a quarter cusp class two relationship after MA, then I, my next set of aligners will be just um, regular aligners without the wings. If I still have more than half cusp class two uh, relationships. When I finish the first set, I call the first set of my MA aligners, then I will order another set. So here's a look at some cases now. Um, this is Charlotte. So she presented uh, 10 years, 9 months of age with 12 millimeters overjet, class 2 division 1, and uh, severe, severe overjet. And uh, she's training her lips in that uh, profile shot, but her compensation obviously was severely proclined upper incisors. And that's a common class two div one compensation because they're caught in front of the lower lip. Typically, it's the tongue which pushes them out. Lips help push them back in. If you add the tongue and the lip, then you have even more of a severe overjet. So fairly uneventful uh, pan. She's in uh, late mixed dentition. And so the CEPH analysis is we have a significant AMB of 6.7, really proclined upper incisors. So my goal in the pre-MA uh, phase is to decompensate her. So this is her um, ClinCheck. I just wanted you guys to see the before and after ClinCheck's to see how things are shaping up. One of the things to consider with class two uh, decompensation, be it uh, Div 1 or Div 2 cases, is to also add mesial out rotations to your upper molars because quite often they are rotated out and that makes the class two look worse. Uh, in her case, I didn't really want to do it. I didn't find her molars to be that rotated because I want to keep them class two, knowing that I'm going into MA. So all I wanted to do is take out incisor decompensation to be ready for the advancement. And so this is her progress after uh, she finished what I would call the, the pre-MA phase. And notice how that uh, canine, uh, upper left canine, is coming in nicely. We just used an eruption compensation for that. So this is now her MA. Sorry, I should show you her MA set of aligners. And this is her in progress. So she she is doing well. Um, the overjet is significantly reduced. Her parents can't believe the difference. So we are, you know, half a cusp class two on the left side, still three quarter cusp class two on the right side, and we're continuing with advancement. Second pre-MA example I want to show you is little Wyatt, who is obviously too young to receive the advancement treatment. So he's nine years, eight months, but he's got some significant compensations I need to deal with. Um, namely, he's developing as a Div 2 case, so he's got class 2 buccal segments, but he has hardly any overjet, and his upper incisors are really upright, central incisors, you'd say. Uh, fairly uneventful pan, all the teeth are developing. If you look at tooth number 46, as we call here in Canada, or your lower right uh, first molar, um, looks like a cavity, it's actually hypocalcified, so we may have to deal with that at some point. Um, but if you look at him treating out, all I'm doing is lining up the incisors, doing slight irritation of molars. In, a, in essence, I'm gaining overjet so that I can advance him once he's ready for it. 
And so a case like this, him being nine years old for a boy, if I don't expect him to have a lot of skeletal maturity until he's, um, you know, 14 or so, uh, this is the one I would probably submit through Invisalign first uh, and then uh, roll into teen afterwards. So the pre-pre-MA candidates, so, you know, your, your submission, I, I call pre-pre-MA my submission, which is not the MA uh, ClinCheck submission, would be these kinds of examples. So kids would have you know, severe compensations, uh, like the first case, so uh, Proclan Max incisors, incompetent lips, um, you know, and then the other one would be your severe overbites, deep curvus fee, vertical concerns, if you have issues other than just AP correction that you want to address. So going into MA, when you submit your case, this is the uh, drop-down menu that you're going to get. So you're going to be in your... AP correction screen on your uh, submission, in your submission, and these are the options you're going to get. This is fairly new, by the way, when uh, we got MA at first uh, here in Canada uh, two years ago. Uh, it was just one, one type of setup the algorithm gave us. Um, and lots of docs have questions about sizes of wings, so the wings have changed, as Dr. Glazer has uh, talked about from the initial study, which he was a part of. Um, to then the initial clinical applications, which started in um, other countries, uh, I, I had it here in Canada, uh, to now it becoming FDA approved and available for docs in states, uh, the product has actually improved tremendously. So one of the things I can tell you that's happened is these options are now available as opposed to just a single algorithm movement, so you can customize it. The second um, benefit is that the wings are actually a little bigger. So initially, the wings were smaller, and um, it, you, you'd think that's a good thing, but it actually made it easier for kids to bite on them and bend them and made it harder for them to properly engage. So bigger wings means that you have a bigger guiding surface plane so that the tabs have a better time guiding the mandible forward. Just think of your twin block. If you have a super tiny, thin little bite plane in the back and that, that cutout that guides the mandible forward is small, it's going to be harder for the kid to engage it. So this is what they've improved. Uh, and then you can also customize it depending on the patient, whether you want the lower arch to go one millimeter beyond edge-to-edge -edge position or two millimeters beyond. And then the MA staging you can customize as well. I don't tinker with this step much uh, because two millimeter increments at the, M at the end of MA are good. What you're getting is you're getting two millimeter jumps every eight aligners. So if you're doing weekly aligner changes, uh, as I'm doing, that means that you're jumping two millimeters every two months or a millimeter a month. And that's the magic number that uh, if you're going to have good success or chance of orthopedic success, the millimeter a month is, is the magic number. So I don't change that much. The, last, the second last one has to do with asymmetrical movements of the lower arch. If you're treating asymmetrical cases, um, you can choose whether to shift or not to shift the lower arch to improve the midline during MA phase. Uh, my recommendation here is to do the shift. I typically will want to have tabs on both sides. And uh, I find that once I start opening the bite on a lot of my asymmetrical class 2 cases, the asymmetry tends to disappear, and it becomes more of a symmetrical class 2 case. Um, the very last point has to do with precision wings uh, cuts. Uh, sorry, not the precision wings, sorry, the cuts for vertical elastics. And the reason here is if the child's a mouth breeder, you, are, you really want to depend on them to wear the appliance properly at night. 
Um, that gives you the eight hours of sleep, um, and that if you if you're getting engagement, you're having good class two correction time there. So if the if the child's a mouth breather, you can add uh, precision cuts, and you can put little vertical elastics to uh, for them to wear at night, only at night when they're sleeping, to make sure that they're engaging properly. So going on with cases, um, this is Kayla, and. She presented 11 years, uh, three months um, of age, 90% deep impinging overbite, and she had my cutoff criteria, which was she had three quarter cuffs, class two relationships on the right side, and moderate crowding. So here is her pan. Um, note, she still has an E in the upper right corner. And I have pre-MA aligners where I'm doing some anterior alignment and then I'm advancing her. So, so for, in her case, the, the wings did not uh, get introduced at aligner number one. And she's settling. This is her initial clinch check. And most of what I'm doing with her upper incisors is proclining them. What I want you to pay attention to also is that E, um, given her age and stage of uh, skeletal maturity, I did not want to delay her case because of the one tooth. So the, the message on a case like hers is that we are ultimately in control of timing of, of the start of treatment. And so I pushed it through um, because back when, like two years ago, um, this, the default was you couldn't do it with ease on, and that's been changed since. So... Not a lot of crowding, but enough to, to warrant um, some expansion movements. And I'll show you her progress picture, which is coming up. And I will share um, one of the mistakes I made on her case. And notice how much bite opening I have on that uh, uh, bottom right picture, which is the, uh, the the second to third quadrant. I don't think I had enough torque expressed. And it's one of the common mistakes I've made, and I would want to caution docs to make sure that you have a lot of torque expressed in the upper incisor region. Um, because one of the side effects I've been getting on some cases are those posterior open bites. And the ones I'm getting in it are the ones that I didn't do enough pre-MAA torque addition. Uh, so I would have added another 10 to 15 degrees of crown uh, labial or uh, root lingual torque. But uh, once she finished out her set of MA aligners, this is where she ended up with that. She does have a posterior open bite, but she's now close enough for me to simply scan and move on to my post MA aligners, which are now my regular aligners. When you are at this stage, you will have one of two ways of finishing your AP correction. You can either choose to do the bite jump with elastics, or you can do the bite jump with um, with the uh, simulated uh, auto rotation of the mandible. So she is. This was the progress pick from September last year, and we're closing her bite. Here is a case that I did good on. So so he is uh, a little older. So. Uh, male patient, 16 years old, has a classic uh, class 2 diff, 2 occlusion, 70% overbite, lots of attrition on incisors. Here's his pano. He's had uh, full dentition and a couple of funky extra premolars happening in the lower arch. 
So it's very upright, upper lower incisors. So in his case, um, I don't mind proclining both upper and lower incisors. And this is his case setup, I want you to see. So he also has pre-MA aligners. But in his case, I added uh, power ridges. If you can look at, you can see the power ridges on that uh, 21, uh, or sorry, on 11, the upper right central incisor. So he has a few more aligners. He has 41 aligners. I did not go for the overcorrection um, to uh, negative overjet. That's him in progress photos. Now he's 17 years and three months at the time of this picture, but notice how much less vertical opening I have in the back. And that's him uh, a month later when he, when he received his refinement aligners. His refinement clint check looks like this. So a very, um, very straight, standard, straightforward 15 aligners, 15 aligners to treat him out now. This is his progress step. So what I wanted to do, uh, Dr. Glazer had suggested to me to show some superimpositions of, of patients in treatment. I have coming up on 150 to 200 uh, in treatment with MA right now patients. Um, I picked a random week to make it as random as I can. So he was in the in that week, and another patient I'll show in a bit was in. Uh, and then I took, I, as a standard of care for me is not to take CEPHs as I'm uh, progressing, so I, I would rather wait until the end of treatment to take a finished CEPH, but for a couple of patients that took progress CEPHs all in one week to show you the, the uh, changes. So a lot of good torque expressed on the upper incisors for him. Um, and then in terms of lower incisors, because they were upright, I didn't mind proclining them. Um, one of the huge benefits that Dr. Glazer had alluded to would, uh, would have to do with lower incisor positioning, and you'll see that in the case that will follow. So I would like to give you some guidelines for your ClinCheck submissions and for your um, clinical efficiencies, if I can. So like I said, I want you guys to not make the same mistakes I did. My first point in CAPS there is to always check attachments on wing-bearing teeth. Why I say this is because if you have uh, pre-MA aligners and it's part of the same ClinCheck, so if you're doing, uh, you know, let's say 11 or 12 pre-MA aligners to do some decompensations and moving into the wings, you, will, you may have disappearing wings. And the point here is that your wing-bearing teeth, which are uh, your upper and lower first, uh, second bias and first molars, they cannot have attachments on them. So I've made this mistake many times, like too many times, but I, I would have handed out a bunch of aligners and then the patient, you know, if they're starting advancement at aligner number six, they come and see me at aligner number 12, which is my, my protocol once the first box is out. Uh, they would come, the aligners are not seating. Why? Well, because I still have attachments on, on second buys and the wing needs to uh, just seat on the flat tooth surface. So if you're having pre-MA aligners, always check uh, the attachments on wing-bearing teeth because they will be disappearing. The second point is if you're considering pre-MA is to add root buckle torque. And this more applies to your Div 1 cases. So your decompensation with Div 1s in addition to the severe overjets as I've showed with that uh, uh, Charlotte, the little girl um, who had the pre-MA treatment is to uh, expand the upper arch. And you're going to have to have some expansion pre or during MA because you're advancing the wider part of the mandible forward. So the upper arch correspondingly has to expand. And one of the good things to do is to consider adding root buckle torque if you're doing pre-MA. 
Um, this I've learned from Dr. Glazer's uh, textbook uh, he wrote, um, but one of the over-treatments I would do if I'm doing pre-MA would be to really, really overcorrect the leveling, so, so treat to zero millimeters overbite if I can, knowing I probably won't get there, but definitely err on the, size of, uh, on the side of decreasing that overbite. And uh, don't let the dentition delay you, as, as I showed with Kayla's case. I'm a huge, huge proponent of limiting lower incisor of proclination, and this, clinically, this single point is probably the biggest reason why I started switching everybody who has three-quarter cusp or more into MA, because I feel that that's a huge benefit of uh, clear liner treatment, is because I'm capping incisors, I can, I can control the lower incisor of proclination. You will have the software will actually automatically place optimized retention attachments for short clinical crowns. So that's a common question I get with short clinical crowns. Um, if you have a, a Div 2 case um, and you're doing pre-MA and you're wanting to level out the curve of speed, uh, my suggestion is to choose the option of leveling in with the combination of lower incisor intrusion and buccal segment extrusion. You can only do that in growing patients, and you might as well use the opportunity. If you have a patient who's not growing and you're attempting to level the curve of speed with uh, combined movements of buccal extrusion and lower incisor intrusion, uh, you're in for a rough awakening because those mol premolars will uh, simply uh, come back down. So, so the only way you can do it, you can't change the facial structure when they're not growing. So the only way you can do it in non-growing patients is to intrude incisors. The last point is to consider deprogramming. One mistake I made on a patient who's a clencher grinder is I delivered MA aligners, aligner number one. That's when the wings were smaller. Didn't give her proper instructions, and so she chewed, you know, she basically started playing with the wings and, and bent one of the wings. So in, in a case like that, I would consider doing some conventional pre-MA aligners just to get them used to wearing aligners uh, and then move into MA phase. Clinical tips. Um, in terms of your practice efficiencies, I would use, I would use the same length and time uh, for the start and adjustment appointments. My IPR delay rules will be the same. It's not recommended uh, in uh, MA cases, so the default setting is no IPR, so this would apply if you're doing pre-MA treatment, pre-MA case setups, and so there I like to um, delay IPR until line number 12. Uh, and then if there is a pre-MA phase, I would always bring them in for MA delivery appointments. So this is one of the mistakes I, I strongly uh, suggest you don't make. Um, they need to come to see you so that you can make sure that they're properly engaging uh, their uh, wings. And then what I instruct kids to do is I tell them, even though you're, no, you're not going to get a big jump until aligner eight from now, I still want you every week when you switch your aligners, I want you to go to the mirror and I want you to check and make sure that you're biting like you are now. And I make them visualize, I make them actually see how their tabs are positioned and that the mandibular um, tab is ahead of the maxillary tab. And then I tell them to expect the big jump at, at eight, but I tell them every week to check for it. Um, they can still use their chewies. Uh, they, you just have to instruct them to do the chewies on the lingual surface of, um, you know, lingual, lingual to the tabs, so they can still use it. It's not an excuse not to use chewies if you use them in your clinic. And the last thing I will say is that I would also strongly recommend that they come in, if you can, uh, come in at least for the first few jumps. Uh, because those are the ones, if they're not going to engage them properly, it's probably going to be during the jumping phases. So if you don't see them at a liner 8 and 16, um, you might be you know, surprised when they come later on because they're not engaging one wing properly.
they need to be able to safely insert and remove them, uh, which means that I don't want them pulling on the wings to, to, to insert or remove them because I don't want them bending the wings. So uh, I'll show them how to remove their uh, aligners without actually pushing on the wings. And then your clinical follow-up, in addition to making sure that the wings are seated, would be your normal regular aligner uh, clinical check, which would be checking for tracking, you know, check your attachments, uh, replace for fix-up if you need to any. And then obviously with uh, MA, you would be checking for overjet re uh, reduction. So let's look at another case. A couple more cases I want to show you. So this is Tatiana. She is 11:10 at the initial pres uh, uh, consult. Significant crowding. But if you look at her face, to me that's a very non-extraction face. So I'm I'm of the opinion, and this is just a, my clinical preference, is that the face will guide what I do with the dentition. So if other things fit, I'll consider extracting. But but uh, with her profile, I did not want to extract teeth. So here's her initial panel and her CEPH. So classic, you know, uh, class two, she's got uh, 6.2 degree A and B. First set of aligners is 48. I have an eruption compensation for the upper right canine. And so she had some pre-MA movements. She was the case like the 17-year-old uh, boy um, on whom I, she came in the same week, so I took uh, Seth on her, and I'll show you the superposition. We'll make you watch the same one again. So this was her in, in progress. She does have uh, a bit of uh, posterior bite opening, but with how deep her bite was, I actually don't think it's as bad as the, as the earlier case. This is her in refinement, and so the bite opening is getting smaller, significantly smaller. And so these are my refinement aligners. So this is the refinement clincheck. And notice that I'm not pulling cluster elastics. In her case, I, I decided to go with the autorotation of the mandible. She came in uh, for a follow-up in December. So I'm getting really good bite closing, uh, second to third quadrant. First to fourth is better. Uh, in January, I took a Ceph. She was actually in yesterday but my lecture was already submitted and everything was ready. So I took progress pictures, but I couldn't put her in the lecture because she, she looks much better than that last photo. But here's the big good news. Lots of good growth of the mandible. And look at the lower incisor position. So I've, I've superimposed, I double-checked, triple-checked her, and there was absolutely no movement more labial in her case. Um, this is my friend Kevin. He is a six foot five Viking. He's an Icelandic uh, uh, descent. He's a farmer from a couple of hours up north because it's minus 40 today. I just talked to him real quick before the lecture uh, because I ice fished with him and he was really cold because he's out in the farm. So the cows are cold and he's having to herd them all indoors. Uh, but he taught me something much more valuable than most of the lectures I've listened to uh, about uh, clinical practice. When I presented uh, my uh, case press for his daughter, uh, I started going into this whole, you know, class two, this, that. I, I start talking about overjets and all this, you know, uh, technical stuff. And then he just stopped me and he said, Doc, do you tell me how to run a farm? I said, no. 
don't rob a guy and just take care of my girl. That's what he said to me. So I took that to mean, um, you know, I was being way too complicated, way too technical. And uh, since then, my uh, case acceptance rate has gone up because most of the time in case prayers, I'll, I'll talk about other stuff, not about technical things to do with our with uh, clinical delivery of care. I'll just be very, very, not like I'm with, with this audience. You know, talk about hockey and uh, and fun things. This is Jasmine. She had 34 aligners, and she treated out really nicely. In her case, we were able to uh, go into wings right away. She was a classic uh, Div 1 case, um, significant overjet, three-quarter cuff class 2 uh, buckle segments. I had an eruption compensation for tooth number 23. Notice how the wings are moving and jumping. Um, they do move slightly, uh, especially every eight weeks. So that's something you have to prep them for. And that's part of the reason why I suggest that uh, they, they make sure themselves that they're engaging them properly. So this is her progress pick, a lot less bite opening, but in the, in the buckle segments, but she didn't have um, the, uh, as much need for torque in the anterior segments. That's how the wings look when they're engaged. And this was her refinement photos refinement, uh, clincheck, some minor bite opening, first to fourth quadrant. And in her case, we're just settling the teeth in. I can't do that with braces and, and, and the forces in this amount of time. I just can't touch it. I can't even come close to it. And so this is her. Uh, lastly, I want to share with you Danny. He is a uh, 11 year old boy, sorry, 12 year old boy who has a 9 millimeter overjet, significant severe overjet, and uh, three quarter cusp of class 2 relations. So, fairly uneventful panel on him, but all the teeth are there, they're developing. We do have some crowding. So, look at the severity of overjet. He has 34 advancement aligners. That's his uh, initial clinch check. We're in MA right away. In his case, uh, if you look at the attachment on tooth number 25, or upper right second by, uh, that attachment didn't disappear, so I checked for that, thankfully. So this is his progress picture, beautifully controlled. And these are his post-MA uh, um This is his post-MA clincheck. Just a little bit of bite settling, and that's about it. So here is him. He is finishing out his post-MA now. I have him in full class one. I mean, the midline's a little off, so we might add a little elastic, but uh, very, very, very beautifully uh, treated case. And lastly, I want to share with you a little picture of a little catfish. This is uh, Red River here in uh, Manitoba. It's uh, near Selkirk, Manitoba. And we have some of the best channel catfishing in, in the world, certainly North America. So when it's not minus 40, it's not the whole year minus 40, by the way. But uh, on a beautiful summer day like this, this is what we do for fun. So if anybody would like to come and visit, it's a great place to see. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Leckick, for that presentation. We're now moving into the Q&A portion. 
Um, just a reminder for those on the call, you will not be able to ask your question verbally. However, you can use the Q&A uh, widget to submit your question via text, and we will read through it. We've already had a number of questions come in, and so I've started grouping them based on topics. Um, Dr. Glazer, would you be able to provide some more insights to the clinical study? A few questions came in around treatment timelines for those study participants that you shared, and also the age range of patients within the study. All right, so for treatment timelines, now remember the data that I was sharing with you was not uh, for the total treatment. The data was for the uh, beginning of treatment to the end of the mandibular advancement phase, and for that cohort of 40 patients, that was about 13 months. Um, what was the second part of that question? The what average the age, range? age range for the patients in the study, yes. Yeah, I don't know. Can we? Is it possible to go back to that slide or... Um, but the average age for the patients was approximately 13. Uh, we, so we targeted, just to give you a little bit more insight, so the target patient for this, this uh, study was not a preteen. We were looking to capture patients, pubertal patients that were actively growing. Um, not to say that you cannot use Invisalign treatment with mandibular advancement for, let's say, Invisalign first cases, but based on data from McNamara and Bassetti you know, showing that you know, perhaps you could get a more, I just want to choose my words carefully, a more robust response with a twin block appliance in a growing pubertal patient. I always make the joke that you know, the best time to treat these patients is when they're on the, on the juice, when they're on growth hormone and you know, when they're on testosterone. So our, our feeling was to target patients in the active growth phase during puberty. So the average age was, uh, I'm just rounding here, was, but the average age was approximately 13. Right. And I think Thank that you data should be on that. If, 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 they, if whoever was asking that question, uh, when, when this presentation is archived, if you go back to the beginning on that, that the, the slide that we had about the study design, we, the range is in there too. I just don't remember the number off the top of my head. Okay, thank you. Um, quite a few comments and questions came in around the use of class two elastics. Dr. Glazer, maybe you can give some insight into how class two elastics were used, if at all, um, during the study. And Dr. Luckett, maybe you can talk a little bit about how you use class two elastics or elastics at all um, in, in, in conjunction with MA treatment. So it's, it's a great question. Actually, I like the way you asked it. So in the study, as part of our study protocol, we eliminated any use of class two elastics, and it was a study design question. If we had used class two elastics, we wouldn't really be able to determine whether the effects that we were seeing are through the precision wings or perhaps effects through the elastics. So being deemed a confounding variable, although we had discussed, again, the same thing, that it would have been nice to have used elastics maybe at night, they were not included in the study at all. Uh, for that reason, we wanted to see the pure effects of the precision wings. But um, Milos, maybe you could talk about how you're using class two elastics in uh, your clinical patients. Okay, sure. Uh, what um, what I like to do with class two elastics is if the class two um, uh, correction is is not that significant. So my my again my cutoff is half a cusp class two or less. That patient, I would not, I probably wouldn't treat and plan with with uh, MA. I would do, uh, reg, you know, conventional liners and and then use elastics uh, to correct occlusion. Uh, once the occlusion presents to be 
significant, and I need that, what I call, by jumping effect. Uh, or, uh, going back to what you had just mentioned about the proper age of patients, you know, getting the best that, you know, what we call twin block effect, then I would want uh, MA to be my first and only treatment option. I would only consider elastics post-MA. And as you've seen in the cases I've shown, I, I have a mix of both. Sometimes I'll just go for a liner settling of the occlusion and auto-rotation. Uh, but I would, I would say more than 50% of the time, I'd like to have at least elastic cutouts placed so that I can hold them once I've done the advancement. But uh, elastics for me would be more of a secondary choice because if I'm dealing with significant class 2 malocclusion, I really want to get the MA going you know, and get it going as fast as I can. Uh, the other problem I have with elastics is compliance. Kids not wanting to wear them. It's harder to put them on. That's uh, the same for whether it's braces or, or aligners. So I kind of, I see this as a beneficial way of avoiding it altogether. But, but I would say more than 50% of the time post-MA, um, I definitely expect to continue treating them. I don't want to have a split in time between my MA treatment and my post-MA treatment uh, because that's when your class 2 effects can wear off. I prepare patients for that. This is going to be probably another year of treatment after where I need to make sure that I'm holding your occlusal uh, correction, your bite correction. Uh, so I would do it, uh, um, you know, put elastic uh, cutouts in your uh, clinical preferences or just put them on yourself to have them as a, as a plan B if you need them. But I don't need them on everybody. I, the one thing I might want to add to that is during the mandibular advancement phase, so at any time when you have precision wings, I do recommend, you know, and it's up to the doctor whether you prescribe precision cut uh, slits or whether you prefer a button and a button cutout. But either way, I do recommend placing them. And in the case like this, that typically they would go on the upper canines and the lower first premolars with the idea that you can have patients wear, and I would recommend a one-quarter inch, four-ounce class to elastic, even during the MA phase, at night, again, for those patients that are either mouth breathers or for patients who maybe sleep on their back, where you want to make sure that the wing, that the mandible isn't falling back. So I think that's worthwhile. And some doctors also recommend, at least at the beginning, for there, there were some patients that we found, that even in my practice, that maybe had a little bit more of a coordination issue where they were having a hard time replicating the bite with the wings engaged properly, where you could have the patient maybe for a few weeks where the class two elastics along with the precision wings full time just to sort of train the mandible and help the patient, guide the patient into a, a more advanced position. So I definitely would recommend, uh, and, and in fact, it, on your clinical preferences, now there's something called MyMA, and typically you would have a My Class 2 or My Class 3 preference for elastic placement. You now have a tab called MyMA, and you can prescribe either button cutouts or slits. Uh, and I do recommend putting them there uh, even during the MA phase. While we're on the topic of elastics, let's talk a little bit about vertical elastics. A couple of questions came through. Um, you know, have you used vertical elastics to help with any someone who's a vertical grower or mouth breeder? And then there was also a question around vertical elastics and trying to correct an open bite. Mila, you um, want to uh, take that one? Sure. The the second last case I showed, uh, Jasmine, she uh, she was I presented her at the summit, and in her case, I used vertical elastics uh, to deal with some of this uh, posterior bite opening. But the reason why I did it is I wanted to to um, uh, treat her out faster. To be honest with you, because I wanted to present uh, present her case. 
this, the last case I showed, um, Danny, who's got nice uh, settling, I, I didn't use vertical elastic. So, so if the reason why I don't have to worry about vertical elastic is because I, I, I want docs to, to sort of see it from my perspective is that I expect to have few sets of, of, of regular aligners after I do the MA. So I don't see the end of MA as, as the end of treatment. I, I see MA phase as just one third or one part of their, their comprehensive treatment. And so what I'm trying to say is I think I'll have enough time, like I did with the very last case, not to have to worry about elastics. Uh, but certainly, if you are worried, you can add cutouts to speed it up and pull vertical elastics, yeah. Um, you know, I, I, uh, going back to uh, another thing Dr. Uh, Glazer talked about, if you remember uh, the MPA uh, number he showed actually went slightly down. That's a very, very big benefit of, of this appliance is that, um, well, most class 2 correctors, no matter which one, even a class 2 elastics will, will tend to rotate the mandibles. So you get your class 1 correction, but you're doing it because everything's rotating down and back. Um, and especially with fixed appliances because they're extrusive in nature. Um, so if we can control the vertical and have a nice bite in the front, um, then I, I probably wouldn't want to speed it up. I would probably want to take my time in post-MA aligners to erupt the teeth into occlusion. Okay. Um, we, we have tons of questions coming in, so I'm just going to start reading some of them off. Um, Dr. Leckick, I know you talked a little bit about patient education on how to properly engage the wings. We had a question come in. Um, do you talk to your patients about how they should hold their mouth um, when they don't have the aligners in, um, particularly like if they're chewing food or just any other time they might have the aligners out? Do you talk about posturing that jaw forward at all? I do. Uh, I do talk to them, and what ends up happening is once they've gone through a few weeks of MA, MA aligners, um, what will end up happening is they're naturally going to be posturing forward. So you're going to get the same effect as you would with a twin block appliance. They're not even aware that they're doing it. So you need to tell them that at the beginning, that this is what they need to expect is probably going to happen, just, just so they're not surprised. Uh, but I do find that after a few weeks of MA aligners, they're just posturing forward on their own, which is essentially the same thing you have with with an appliance, like I keep going back to trim block, but again, it's the same side effect of posterior bite opening that you would have with a trim block as well. So, you know, what's happening is they're going forward and they're functioning a little bit heavier uh, anteriorly because because they're they're hitting those teeth first. Mm -hmm. um, there's a ton of questions that are trending right now around. Um, open bite and the protocols that you use to correct maybe an open bite in post-MA programming. Uh, can we talk a little bit more about open bite, how to correct that if it, it does occur during uh, the treatment for the patients? Okay, so so here I run into some, uh, those, those will be some of the mistakes I've made. Um, in Div 2 cases, if I've gone into MA, you know, what I, would, what I would not consider too soon, if I didn't spend pre-MA time getting torque expressed, those are the ones where I probably would have most of those posterior open bites show up. Um, and then when you get to that point where you see that you're getting a posterior open bite, you kind of have to pick your poison. Uh, what I mean by that is I would make a decision, clinical decision, based on where I am with MA, whether I should, you know, rescan and order new aligners altogether or whether I should just continue. 
And when I say pick my poison, is which one of the, you know, if, if I have a posterior open bite, yet I'm advancing the mandible, which one of the two at the time I see the posterior open bite happening, because, for example, I didn't have enough anterior torque, torque express, which one do I want to correct most? And for me, most of the time, the answer was I still want to advance the mandible, and I'll deal with the uh, posterior bite opening after the MA phase. The problem you have is that as you're advancing the mandible and you're getting the posterior open bite, if you're not, uh, if you, again, you're dealing with not enough torque expression, you will ultimately have limited amount of advancement. You're not going to advance it as much as it should come forward. Um, so then you, your post-MA aligners, which, again, you know, are going to be required, they might take longer to treat. So I would make that decision if I've, if I've made a clinical error not doing pre-MA properly, I would make the call where I'm at with MA, um, you know, MA phase based on that is when I would make a decision whether to continue or, or to stop, rescan, and, uh, and deal with the bite opening. Most of the time, I just continue, continue my MA. Something else to, to think about, and this is a mistake that I made in actually all of my study patients, and it was really a psychological mistake. I was so excited to see how these wings would perform and so I didn't prescribe the pre-MA phase for any patient, and I think that's a mistake. In addition, as Dr. Leckick pointed out, to insufficient upper incisor torque, if you looked at his cases, you'll notice that the deep bites, or, or excuse me, the posterior open bites, are also related to uh, lower curve of speed. Does we know for these patients that present with large overjets, they'll typically have super eruption of the lower anterior segment. And I think it's very, very important to spend some time in the pre-MA phase flattening the lower curve of speed for the same reason. If you have super eruption of the lower incisors and you advance the mandible, very quickly the, the lower incisors are going to contact the cingulum of the upper incisors, and then you have two problems. One is that it's going to limit the amount of, of sagittal correction, so you're not going to get all the way to class one. The second is that if you do go to edge to edge, all you're doing is you're dropping your mandible vertically. And in these cases, we don't, want, we don't want to lengthen the lower facial height for the most part. We want more horizontal projection of the mandible. So if you spend enough time in pre-MA completely flattening your curve of speed, and in my cases, I actually add in reverse curve as I would for a patient in braces. If you can have a flat arch, now when you advance the mandible forward, You'll, you'll have more of a horizontal advancement and you'll have less vertical change and therefore you'll have less of a posterior open bite to deal with. So you, you, you sort of decide, are you going to deal with the curve of speed uh, before MA or after? My, my feeling is I like to personally deal with it beforehand just because I don't want to have these, these big open bites and side effects to deal with later. But one way or other, you have to get the arch flat. I, I agree. So, 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 Dr. Glazer is 100% right. It's it's a combo of of torque needing to be expressed in the upper anterior region and and the leveling of the curve of speed. And so, um, if you look, at, if you, I don't know if the uh, uh, people watching uh, listening to us can remember, but one of the one of the ones which had the posterior bite opening was a classic lack of leveling of curve of speed. One of the slides I showed because the sevens were hitting. The sixes weren't, and then you go down to four, four, uh, three, uh, sorry, four and five. The the first, second by they're not hitting at all, so there's no leveling basically being done. So in that case, as Dr. Glazer uh, suggested, I would strongly recommend getting torque expressed, and then um, you know going with those um, uh, leveling movements before you go into MA. There was a few questions that came up regarding the pre-MA phase. Um, 
when we're talking about the pre-MA phase, like how are those needs handled? Is should it be considered during phase one treatment or um, during just a comprehensive treatment? Well, you have the choice. Uh, now, so what I typically would do, so let's say for the average patient that comes in, the adolescent patient and the early permanent dentition. In that case, it's all going to happen in, in one stage, meaning that you're going to take your initial scan and your initial records, and what you'll get back from your ClinCheck will actually have pre-MA aligners, MA aligners, and then transitional aligners all off of your first scan. So I don't want doctors to think that they have to go through pre-MA and then do another scan. Now, that's possible if, for example, if you're maybe doing a, a phase one case. But So I'll, I'll speak to these and maybe, uh, Milos, you could speak about your, your Invisalign first cases. But for those patients that are coming in for routine adolescent treatment, you'll have pre-MA aligners and then you'd seamlessly go into MA and then you'll have your transitional aligners. And that's all off of your first ClinCheck treatment plan. It's a little bit different, I think, for your, um, your Invisalign first cases, isn't it, Milos? It is. It is. And I would, I would choose Invisalign first if I have other issues to deal with. So uh, if I don't have other issues to deal with or no other indications for early treatment, then I would do exactly as you said. I would just wait and it would be part of my one submission. So then the, 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 the MA ClinCheck will have its, its own little pre-MA phase. And, you know, for the audience, um, what needs to, to happen to trigger MA is two millimeters of overjet. That's all you need. So that's how the, the algorithm is set up. That's not a lot. So, so the docs have a lot of, you know, clinical input, and it's a lot of those pre-MA movements are at their discretion because theoretically you could start advancing everybody once you have two millimeters of overjet. That's all you need because that's your uh, two-millimeter jump every two months. And when you're treating someone pre-MA and then they're about to go into the MA phase, do you have the option of deciding where the wings are placed? Is there a specific set of aligners, or do you do allow the um, treatment software to, to guide that decision? Okay, so, so my understanding, and, and uh, Dr. Glazer can correct me if I'm wrong, is that no, we don't have an option. That These are very specifically designed, um, and they, uh, they kind of shift and change positions. They kind of jig slightly, and all of those things matter for, uh, f uh, for the algorithm to properly work. So the size and position, uh, I, I'm not aware we're able to change. I was involved with some of the um, clinical um, uh, follow-ups uh, just before the FDA approval, uh, because there's been some changes that they made to the wings last summer. Um, and at that time, you know, I was, I was uh, communicating with the engineers who are uh, actually, you know, uh, in charge of the MA and algorithm and everything. And I, I, my understanding is you can't really change it, no. No, that, that's correct. You can define the length of your pre-MA phase. You can actually define the length uh, of MA. For example, if you have a patient that is a full cusp class two, uh, in my in my practice, I would probably want nine months to a year of of MA. So now the default is 26 stages, but 26 stages is really only half a year. So you can ask for more MA or you can ask for more pre-MA. But as far as the size and placement of the the, the, the physical placement of the wings, that's uh, an engineering issue, and that's not something that you can define. Okay. Um, 
so some questions came up around frequency of wear, and individuals were wondering how long are you prescribing patients to wear during the MA phase versus um, either pre or post MA phase via liners. So yeah, as we just alluded to, so this is just you know the world according to Barry. This is just you know based on my observation of let's say treating aligner patients with elastics, or even before my Invisalign days, just treating uh, you know, teen patients with class two elastics. My rule of thumb for an end-on class two, I'm looking for probably about nine months uh, of of MA. For a full cusp class two, I'm looking for closer to a year. Uh, I don't have any data. You know that's anecdotal, so that's just kind of how how I do it. Milos, what, what, do you, what do you think? I, I, I think you're, you're basically bang on. 25 is not enough. Uh, um, you know, 25 is a very small number of aligners. If you think of it, it that's not even half a year. So on, on ones where the uh, clinch check comes back to me as 25, I fully expect and I inform the patient that, you know, when, you, when we finish, I only call it a set of aligners. I don't call it aligners, period. I just say when we finish with this set of aligners, your next set will probably have wings as well. So I'm prepping them, and it's in that range of nine months to a year for most of them. That's correct. Yeah, so I think the take-home message for doctors, you know, I always recommend when, when doctors are, are, let's say, maybe trying out a new technique, go always back to what you know. So think about for your own practice whether you're using a fixed functional appliance, removable functional appliance, or class two elastics. You know, in your clinical judgment, how long do you expect, if, with, a, let's say, a good patient, how long do you expect a class two to convert to a class one? And I would basically use that same judgment uh, for your MA cases. Okay, thank you. Um, yes, yeah, so a number of questions came in around adult cases and being able to use MA in adults. Have either of you experienced prescribing it to adults and do you see a difference in outcomes? Uh, let me take that first. Uh, it was certainly not a, a, an inclusion criteria in the study. So for the North American study, that was not a part of, of what we were doing, nor, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I do not believe that the FDA approval includes adult patients. So uh, I, it, as far as I know, uh, for those doctors that would want to consider the treat using this appliance for adults, that would be considered an off-label use. Uh, Dr. Leckick? I, I agree. I, I've dabbled. So one of the cases I showed, he's now 17 and a half. I mean, to me, that's that's borderline the 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 end of of what I should be doing. And I have one more 18 year old boy, and I have I have an adult female, but I don't think she's 20 yet. So she's maybe 18 or 19. I have three cases I can think of, and that would be my my red line. I wouldn't I wouldn't go beyond that. It's a common question. Um, I do want to. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Dr. Glazer. No, that, that question comes up at, at every, uh, every, every seminar, uh, and I know that there's you know, discussion around maybe, let's say, sleep apnea and things like that, but again, for the doctors in the audience, I just want to make it clear that it has not been tested on adults, and um, you know, that's something that I think you'd have to use at your own discretion, but knowing that there isn't really any uh, clinical uh, data to support the use in adults at this point. Yeah. Yes, um, that's what I was planning on to expand upon. So the FDA approval um, was the correction of class two. So any other use for sleep disorders would be considered off-label. Um, that's why typically we don't see it prescribed in, in adult patients. So. 
All right, let me grab some more of these questions. Um, are you having your patients change every week? I believe we answered that. Um, can you just confirm for the group one more time around weekly aligner changes, more or less? Absolutely. Yeah. Nothing yeah. changes in terms of that, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, there are some questions around um, having MA built into retainers. Um, I can answer that for the group as well. Right now, we do not have the MA wings as part of um, our retention for Vivera. Yeah, if I can, if I can add, um, I apologize mm -hmm. to go back to the second last question. Um, I've, uh, some of the cases I, I, I treated in 2007 was started in summer of 2017 when we got it here. Uh, I was doing 10-day, 14-day changes, and I found that it absolutely makes no difference whatsoever. So for sure, I would recommend to stay with seven-day changes as long as they're properly engaging the wings. Uh, and then, what was the last? What was the one you just talked about now? Um, about MA the, oh, the retention. wings so, being available on retention. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what I do in, in, in retention of it is obviously I wouldn't use them in retention, but if I'm, uh, so when Dr. Glazer and I were talking about the 6, 9, 12-month treatment, if I finish 25 aligners and uh, I'm, I'm ordering more aligners, then what I will do is I'll use my last winged aligner as my quote-unquote retainer. So I'll give a kid a break. I'll say, well, you know, you don't have to wear this one, you know, 22 plus hours a day. This one you can wear 12 hours a day. Uh, for that four to six week period until I get the new set. Um, but, um, you know, if the new set has wings, then that I'll continue with wings. But I fully expect to treat post wings, um, uh, post uh, wings patients with, uh, with regular aligners, which will then have normal retention protocol. Sorry. No, 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 I'm sorry. Um, you actually brought up another good point. We didn't really discuss transitional aligners. When you get your MA cases, you'll notice at the bottom where you have your little timeline that there's three different colors. The, the, the light blue color represents pre-MA, the dark blue color represents MA, and then there's a grayer color at the end that represents transitional aligners. The default is that every doctor will get four transitional aligners. So what does that mean? There are actually four duplicate aligners. And it's very important to make sure that your team knows that when you do your refinement scan, you should actually do your scan four stages before the end. The purpose of the uh, transitional aligners is to have the patient be able to wear a fresh aligner every week while they're waiting for their next bunch of aligners to come in. The other cool thing is that you can define the length of that. The, the default is four, but if, if let's say in your office maybe it takes six, patient, six weeks for the patient to come back to get their next aligners, you can ask for six. Or if there's a case where you feel like you want to hold the patient in a super class one position for a period of time, you can ask for additional transitional aligners, which are just going to be static aligners again to sort of let the, the patient accommodate to the advanced position. But I do think it's important to, instead of doing the scan at the, at the last transitional aligner, and then have, you know, you know what happens, patients don't want to wear the dirty aligner and you know how that goes. So this way you, you have uh, to tell the patient, just keep changing weekly and come back in four weeks and we'll have your next bunch of aligners. So that's what transitional aligners are for. Okay. Um, I'm going to do a quick time check. Jasmine, do we have more time for questions, or do we need to move on to the CE survey? We have about four more minutes for questions. Okay. Let's um, 
try to tackle just a couple more of these. Um, more questions came in around using MA alongside with Invisalign first, and how do we, how do you make that decision when you're dealing with some primary teeth? Can you touch on, you know, the need of that stability and really selecting the correct um, patient that might be younger for using MA? Um, so, what my approach there is is to consider it as different phase one versus phase two treatment. So this is the one where I would definitely split the two. The way I see MA, it, it is part of my comprehensive treatment. So I know I've said it 10 times, I keep going back to the same thing. I don't see my MA phase as separate from comprehensive orthodontics, which is to follow, or comprehensive orthodontics in the pre-MA form, which will be taking place before the wings are delivered. If a case, if a patient clearly requires phase one and phase two treatment, then I would consider using uh, the Invisalign first option. I do quite a bit of it, but I do it for different reasons. I'm not going to be doing any AP correction there. The reason for it is, is that I want to time my AP correction with when I can have my, the biggest bang for the buck. And, and Dr. Glazer has talked about the, the age ranges, which were carefully considered, and that was the part of the, of the study. Uh, those were the age ranges of the patients treated in the study. So Invisalign first would be done, you know, more than a year prior to uh, MA treatment. Uh, there is a reason why you cannot order your wings with uh, when you're doing an Invisalign first submission. Uh, one of them is that the dentition is rapidly changing, and which is which is why you get your clint checks back quickly, so the communication manufacturing takes place faster. Uh, for the first cases, the other reason is is that um, it, if you if you do um, advancement that early, the only way you can you can hold you can basically keep your class one is if you hold it or retain it the whole entire time until they're ready for MA treatment. Um, but if the if the patient separate from uh, from uh, mandibular advancement or anterior posterior correction requires other treatment needs, you know, let's say there's upriding a molar, uh, space regaining, those kinds of things that you have to do through Invisalign first. What I would do then is uh, increase the fees as I've talked about because if you if you look at your lab bill for Invisalign first, which then becomes an uh, Invisalign teen case, there is a difference in that. It's, it's a higher lab bill. So that, that's at a, a doc's discretion that depending on the kind of practice you run and the kind of market you're in, uh, I mean, you, people can use that as a, as a profit generating tool. I don't, you know, my market is, is, is not like that. I mean, we don't, you know, it's, 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 treatment here is not expensive and, and my patients wouldn't be happy if I, if I started, you know, in, you know, not just increasing the lab bill difference, but making money on that difference. I mean, it's not, I don't see it as a, as a parent's fault why their child needs this treatment done in two phases. Uh, so for me, I just split that lab bill difference over the two phases. That's what I do. Okay. Um, and I think we have time for at least one more question. Um, I was reading through, and there was a couple of questions that came in around um, how the aligner covers the back molars, and if you, as a result of them being covered through most of the treatment, 13 months or more of treatment, do you see that there's any intrusion issues if they weren't fully erupted? Uh, if they weren't fully erupted, um, I, I don't understand. It, like that, the molars would typically be fully erupted because uh, if I'm doing MA, I'm doing it at an age where I would expect to have the first molars fully erupted for sure. The second molars may not be fully erupted, 
but the wings are not going to be based on second molars. So most of the intrusion side effects I would see on the bias and the first molars, particularly the wing-bearing teeth, which are second bias, first molars. Um, and to me, it's just part of what I expect to see. I tell patients that this is what's going to happen, and it's not a different side effect from anything else like it, like a twin block. Okay. Um, this will be the final question. Um, so if we always rescan, do you always have to rescan at the end of MA before ordering the transitional aligners? Uh, so no, transitional aligners come with your first order of aligners. So when you get that, the, the boxes of aligners back, you'll have any pre-MA aligners, you'll have your MA aligners with precision wings, and you'll also have your transitional aligners. So that all comes as one kit, if you will. Um, at that point, the patient would then be ready to do either one of two things. You may decide that the patient needs more MA, and you could do a scan, and you could send a prescription, and you could ask for additional uh, MA aligners. Or you could decide to go into standard Invisalign treatment, which means that you can order a full suite of features, pre precision cuts, uh, smart force features, and just do standard Invisalign treatment after that. So the, the uh, transitional aligners are part of your order, and you'll see that on your timeline. If you hover your cursor over the bottom uh, where, where, at the last uh, four aligners, you'll see that those are transitional aligners. Yeah, and there's no jumping at that last stage, what Dr. Glazer's talked about. is It's basically to make it cleaner, smoother for the patient. Am I correct? It's Exactly. So they're essentially yeah. getting duplicate aligners so that they don't have grungy aligners. You know, it's funny. If a patient wears a retainer for two years, it's fine. But if they wear an aligner for eight days, they think it's like toxic waste. <laughs> but anyway, they get four <laughs> clean aligners. And actually, there is an argument, too, that, you know, over time, if the patient were going to wear the same aligner for four weeks, I definitely think you'd see degradation of the wings. So this way, they just unzip a bag every week, another fresh aligner, wear it full time, and then they're going to return to your office after four weeks when you're going to be inserting your refinement aligners, which can have more MA or not, depending on, on your, your decision. Thank you, Dr. Glazer and Dr. Leckick. This will conclude the Q&A portion of our program. We know that you may have additional questions on this topic. However, we apologize. We have run out of time. At the end of the session, please complete a quick survey regarding your experience with this the expert. Upon completing the survey, you will be automatically directed to the CE certificate page where you can download your CE. Ask the expert is approved for AGD Pay CE. Please take just a few minutes to complete the survey. Your feedback is extremely helpful and we would greatly appreciate it. Thank you all for joining us today for another Ask the Expert program. This program will be archived on the Invisalign doctor site in one to two weeks. Please look for upcoming 2019 Ask the Expert programs on the Invisalign doctor site. If needed, you may contact your territory manager for support. Thank you and have a great day.